I was eating a cheeseburger in the desert with a Navajo shaman. He told me about the snake. The snake didn't eat cheeseburgers, but preferred a strawberry milkshake. Where did a snake find a strawberry milkshake out in the middle of the desert? I didn't know. But what I do know is you're listening to see here. from him you're listening to see here episode 50 what a landmark woohoo we made it and joining me as i always do my two wonderful friends my two learned colleagues in music moviedom i'd like to introduce the original writer of the storm mr tim merrill i am the lizard king i can do anything and the real wild child mr bernie stickwell good morning and i am bishdinsky morrison we are here oh. <laughs> I, I had to go there <laughs> you've been waiting months to do that haven't you I, I have i've been waiting forever so yes we are here as you might have surmised by this point, to talk about the 1991 film by Oliver Stone called The Doors. It should actually be called The Jim Morrison Story, but we'll go by its official title, The Doors. Yes, we've waited till episode 50 to do this. I'm going to be asking you, Bernie, in a few minutes how it was that you came to pick this one. But I just wanted to sort of like go back for a moment and just sort of think back. We've done this as i said you know 50 episodes and we started out in episode one talking about a documentary where a rock singer flashed his dick in a live public performance and in episode 50 we're still speaking about a band whose lead singer may have flashed out his dick in public have we come a long way i don't know we'll discuss this after the break i think they both had stinky pantaloons We're going to go to a break. We're going to go play the trailer for the film. And then we'll be back to talk all things about Lizard Kings. Because we have a relevant show for you. So you're listening to See Here, episode 50. We'll be back in a moment. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Guitar player. John Densmore, percussionist, 22 years old. Far out. Uh, Pamela Morrison, ornament. Raymond Daniel Manzarek, 121239, position. Name, occupation. Uh, Jim. Oh, no. Dang! You know the day this car is a night. Mm. Night divides the day. Sides are being chosen. The planet is screaming for change, Morrison. We gotta make the myths. Oh! You need to say the first shaman invented sex. They call him the one who makes you crazy. I'm the lizard king! I can do anything! Jim Morrison, the god of rock. (laughs) 
guys at Network have told us that they have a little problem with the lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. They asked if you could say instead, girl, we can't get much better. Can you dig that? Girl, we couldn't get much higher. I love it when you sing to me. I'm the poet and you're my muse. Do you hear them out there? Do you they want now? Try drinking blood. Mr. Morrison, you've gone too far. You're a poet, not a rock star. What are you going to do for Act 3? Testing the bounds of reality. Welcome back. Thank you very much for joining us for this incredible occasion. Is everybody here? Is everybody here? Then let the show begin. We're talking about the 1991 film from Oliver Stone called The Doors, based on an original script by Randall Johnson. But I also think that it was used from the Danny Sugarman book called No One Here Gets Out Alive, was a source material. So the film starred Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison, Carl McLaughlin as Raymond Zarek, Frank Whaley as Robbie Krieger, Kevin Dillon as John Densmore, and Meg Ryan as Pamela Corson, who was Jim Morrison's common-law wife. So IMDb describes this as the story of the famous and influential 1960s rock band The Doors and its lead singer and composer Jim Morrison from his days as a UCLA film student in Los Angeles to his untimely death in Paris, France at age 27 in 1971. Yeah, that, look, that's a pretty bog-standard description with a couple of points I want to take issue with, but I'll let it slide for the moment. Before we get into discussing the film, I think we should have a bit of a brief discussion about the band and about the music. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, yeah. Bernie, this was your pick, and I want you to answer me a question I've been thinking about since you announced this on episode 49. Are you actually a Doors fan? I am, yes. Yeah, I kind of am with a caveat, really. When I first started listening to music from the 60s, I would have been like 17, 18. I kind of came out of my teenage goth phase uh, and I had a friend who was very much into the kind of pebbles and nuggets, kind of garagey stuff. Mm. Made me a couple of cassettes. Shows how old I am there. So that stuff was really uh, intriguing and interesting to me. And through him, I got to hear The Doors and I just fell in love with them. I kind of listened to nothing but The Doors for about two years, I think. The upshot of that is that now I probably haven't listened to them seriously for about 25, 30 years. Right. But I had that really intense 
sort of teenage infatuation with them and yeah absolutely love them there is that uh, residual love there and in fact watching the film I mean we'll get onto this but this really kind of made me want to dig out the LPs and actually listen to them properly again yes so and I figured it was as far as the film goes in some ways this is kind of the elephant in the room it's not got a particularly good reputation I think a lot of people would probably say this is how you don't do a music biopic right nevertheless it's got a, a kind of reputation be that good or bad and it kind of felt like at this point in our illustrious see here career we should tackle this one so that's why i chose it okay tim i only discovered from a conversation that i had with you during the week that you are not a fan of the band the doors we're not going to get to the film yet but you're not a doors fan well it's a 50 50 thing for me because i mean you cannot deny that they were incredibly talented i mean you know manzarek and Dinsmore, it was part of a generation, you know, you can't deny that. But what always put me off was this whole thing, and it's the same thing that puts me off about you 2 You have somebody who has a head that just swells like a zit just waiting for a pin. <laughs> They've got their head so far up their ass that you can just watch them disappear on stage every every yeah. time they perform. With Morrison, it was that whole holier-than-thou, I'm a mystical man, you don't understand, man. He was like the first fucking emo kid. If anything, emo kids are less self-involved and indulgent yeah. than Morrison was. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, they were all friends when they got together, but I just can't imagine the rest of those guys having to constantly endure that. It just must have been in my monumental task to just be able to and it just got progressively worse and worse and worse again i like a lot of the music that they made okay but but there's just that whole aura of morrison himself that really stains it for me that leaves it with a really bad taste in my mouth i'm probably going to take up a lot of that sort of theme when we get into discussion about the movie about morrison's character public perception either through the danny sugarman book or through the film itself my introduction to the music itself was in the 80s and it seemed that everywhere you looked in the 80s the doors were like a new band all over again at least in australia mm -hmm. that's the impression that i got it, it wasn't just like another bout of nostalgia well there was that live album there was that what was alive, it? She, she, alive cried. she cried yeah 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 right when that um, came out i remember when that came out again and that's kind of i think what rejuvenated them right well, look, I remember, I think it might have been 1981 or 1982, a good friend of mine bought me for my birthday what was then one of the many Doors Greatest Hits albums. And just sort of thinking about it, it was a fairly straight ahead sort of best of album because, you know, being a single record, they couldn't include any of the 11 minute, 12 minute cuts like the end or when the music's over, which was a strong part of who they were. It was more, you know, I guess, you know, the poppy things like Hello, I Love You and mm -hmm. uh, Love Her Madly and things like that. I mean, but I still fell in love with what I heard at the time. I don't think in even in 82, I knew anything beyond Jose Feliciano's version of Light My Fire, which I think I'd heard on the radio station that my mother chose to listen to when I was a kid all the time. It wasn't until I think I went across the road to my neighbor's place and she had a copy of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, which I think might have come out either during the Doors lifespan or maybe just shortly after. And that had more of the weird, if you want to call it like that, cuts all the less straight ahead poppy stuff. But at least it goes to show that they were a band of two sides, really. It wasn't, the film likes to present Jim as this big counterculture figure. And we'll, we'll 
get to that, but you know, the music here on you know, a couple of these compilations shows that there was a poppy side and there was the more exploratory sort of side. They could live with having a jazz drummer and a classically trained organist and a flamenco trained guitarist and what sounds like shit on paper, but they somehow managed to make it work and they took all these influences. That was my introduction to them and I think like you, Bernie, I went through a period, I wouldn't say I listened to nothing but, but I was listening to, <laughs> I was listening to all those records. I bought each one, one by one, except for the Soft Parade, which to this day I still think is a chunk of shit, apart from maybe the song Wild Child. But apart from that, I find something to love musically off every album. I do appreciate the fact that they were a diverse band, because even if you just sort of go back to that first album where you have something as gorgeously beautiful as the Crystal Ship and then you go a couple of songs later down to exploring Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht mm. with you know, the Alabama song and that's the same album that has uh, Willie Dixon's Backdoor Man. really diverse record and you know, everyone sort of thinks oh, okay well that's where Light My Fire started and you know a great song but there was so much more to this band and as you say Tim they were all great musicians and I think oh absolutely what was yeah they really were for me and what, when you look at who wrote the songs I mean like you know it wasn't Morrison wrote the lyrics but I mean you look at the majority of the songs themselves, the melodies and all that, it was, you know, yeah. it was Krieger, Dinsmore, and it wasn't Morrison at all. I think he might have written the melodies on, I think by the time they got to the third or fourth album, they stopped making the albums as written by the doors, and they actually said, right, who was the composer? So I think Waiting for the Sun, and maybe even the Soft Parade, they actually said, right, this one's written by Krieger, this one's written by Morrison. So I think mm-hmm. there are some songs that are attributed to Morrison solely, as well as songs that are attributed to Krieger solely but the nice thing about the group as diverse as they were is if you don't look at the label you don't always know because you listen to a song like Light My Fire and that's all Krieger but it sounds like a Morrison lyric it's nice how they blended they didn't really sound like anyone else at the time you listen to a lot of stuff that was you know the kind of west coast acid rock or uh, the kind of folk rock that the birds and so on were doing and the doors really seem to sort of stand apart from all that they're very obviously of that period to me, they just don't really sound like anyone else. Is that uh, just me? I don't know. No, a, little no, no. Bit, a little bit of Jefferson Airplane, I would say. Like Because, I mean, when you look at somebody to love, I think that's a little bit. But but you're right, though. They are they were kind of diverse. You can listen to literally a couple of seconds of a Doors song, even if it's not got Morrison singing, and you sort of know it's the Doors, whereas you do that with Airplane or the, well, actually, yeah. the Grateful Dead's obviously not a good example. But a lot of bands from that period, they have not a similar sound, but... I don't know, maybe I'm just going in circles here. No, no, not at all. I, pretty much what you've said, though, is right on the money, I think. You'd listen to a door song and you know it was a door song. You wouldn't yeah. listen to a Jefferson Airplane song and confuse it for a door song. You'd say they're maybe going for a similar feel. I mean, I think even bands like Love, Arthur Lee's Love, yeah. and really Arthur Lee had a lot to do with getting the Doors signed to Elektra Records because yeah. he was the one who yeah. said to Jack Holtzman, you've got to go down and see this incredible band. And if you go onto the Stooges from a couple of years later, there's still something that the Doors did and what the Stooges did 
that have a common link. They have jazz Whoa. elements and make something in a, a rock formation with it. So th the fact that those two bands ended up on Electra is really quite appropriate. And, uh, I'll take it even further than that, is that when you listen to all the outtakes of Funhouse, mm -hmm. that they were trying to basically incorporate keyboards into Funhouse and there was even, I think there are recordings of Ray Manzarek playing with the Stooges. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know. So they actually were trying to kind of mold the Stooges into kind of an East Coast kind of Doors-ish type thing. They weren't at all. But with that influential front man, when you listen to, you know, the first Stooges record at the end of it, where they've got that song, The Mantra, mm. mm -hmm. and it sounds almost like something that the Doors would do. think about it it's a drone which is pretty much right. like the end is a drone it's more obvious with the monks chanting in the stooges that they're going more to the source but right but they're definitely going for a similar sort of feel right tim you sort of hit on it there about having a frontman like that, having a frontman like Morrison, or in the Stooges' case, a frontman like Iggy Pop. And both bands, in a way, were lucky and yet unlucky to have the frontman that they did, because can you think that with a less charismatic man like Jim Morrison, that would the Doors have necessarily gone on to get the level of success that they did, and yet Jim Morrison was singing out of front of a band that sounded like, as you've already gone and said, Bernie, like no one else. You mm -hmm. heard, John Densmore had that light, deft touch behind the drum kit and you know, Manzarek's keyboards you know, were noticeable a mile away. And Robbie Krieger's guitar style was just mm -hmm. was really just, once again, something unique. He was a flamenco player. And whilst not everything that he did was flamenco-based, though there were a couple of songs that did go directly to that flamenco source. It had a real Baroque feel to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Once Morrison died, and they did do a couple of albums without him, it wasn't the same. But I imagine that if Morrison had said, right, I'm going solo, I'm going to go join a different group of musicians, I'd like to think that, well, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't have worked have been for the same either. either. It, was the, uh, it was the perfect storm, wasn't it? It was everything, all those elements coming together, mm. that period. They just, like you say, because you, you write it down on paper and it just looks ridiculous, but there was just some chemistry there between them all and it all just clicked and it worked more there's, than the sum of their parts. There's one thing here that some people have said, and I've read this, you know, in several instances some people could say this is just total horse shit but when you're basically performing a ritual of some sort like a magical ritual or you're trying to achieve some type of spiritual state you've got certain people that are very focused and then you've got one individual that's usually out of their head and they get into that kind of ecstasy that kind of fanatic state 
And a lot of people have said that that was the Doors, is that the band were basically keeping the circle while Morrison was the shaman inside getting out of his head and exercising all of these things or reaching his quote-unquote nirvana and going off of his gourd while the rest of the guys just reined in the circle and kept it tight. Mm -hmm. And that's where everybody said it was so magical. You (laughs) could look at it that way or you could just look at it like Morrison was an immature, pretentious asshole they just you think had to yeah rein him in yeah go on say you say think? the word say the word twat he was, a, he was an absolute twat he was just an utter <laughs> fucking twat there's no denying that at all I'm not gonna justify you know or try and do you know what I mean try and defend him I mean well, yeah. we'll, we'll get to this there you know well, obviously there were positives to what he did but as a person sure. I think he was probably just an absolute fucking yeah nightmare. he was up his own ass you look at every you know rock star today from Marilyn Manson to the guy from Green Day to whoever when they go on stage and have those meltdowns it's like yep you're pulling Jim Morrison right yeah, there, yeah. man. You know, it's like he was the granddaddy of it all. And Because he was the first person doing that doesn't necessarily right. make it the right thing to do. No, you know, make him a hero just, for doing it. No, no, it. at all. He yeah, set a yeah. bad precedent. He set Absolutely. a very bad precedent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Not to try to get in any more jabs into somebody who's dead and, you know, can't defend themselves. But, uh, you know, you always see those posters of, of Morrison, the American poet. And it's like, listen, buddy, <laughs> you were no fucking Walt Whitman, all right? Not even close, <laughs> okay? Not even close the movie will begin in five moments the mindless voice announced all those unseated will await the next show we filed slowly languidly into the hall the auditorium was vast and silent as we seated and were darkened the voice continued The program for this evening is not new. You have seen this entertainment through and through. You've seen your birth, your life and death. You might recall all of the rest. Did you have a good world when you died? Enough to base a movie on? It just makes me laugh. Bernie, have you seen uh, that Jimmy Kimmel doing The Doors with the oh, no, Reading I haven't. Rainbow? No, oh, no. my God. It's very good. You know, the, you know the show Reading Rainbow, right? Yeah. Well, it's got them singing the theme song to Reading Rainbow as The Doors, and it's just perfect. <laughs> it's just dead on. The Indian in the cupboard. There's a monster. There's a monster at the end of this book. His lyrics, I mean, sure, I I like some of the songs like Riders on the Storm. You know, yeah, I like the lyrics to that, but it's not profound. I mean, yeah, if you're on, you know, six hits of microdots, sure. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Again, I, I agree with you. He was not a good poet, but for me personally, there's something about his imagery and his use of words that work really well within the context of what they were doing. I think if you actually try to go too deep with it and try to read too much stuff into it, he was just a pretentious dick. Yeah. But it's, it's not profound at all, as you say, but... 
like I said earlier, it's the perfect storm and in the context of the band and what they were doing. Sure. For me, it works perfectly. Well, I say it works perfectly. It worked perfectly for me when I was about 18, 19 years old. Right. Mm -hmm. And now when I look at it and now watching the film, as we'll get to in a moment, I can kind of think, yeah, I used to really like that. And I can see why I like that. And I still kind of like it. But I can now see that he actually was just a pretentious dick. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of, you know, you're older and you're wiser and you think, just stop being a fucking child, will you? you Yeah, exactly. I'm the Lizard King! I can do anything! Raise your hands if you understand! So this is a good place to start talking about the film now that we've sort of gone and laid the ground what we feel about the music. In leading up to the talk about the film overall, we've already sort of gone and talked for a few minutes now about Morrison as character, and I think it's probably fair to say that yeah this was his persona and he was a narcissist and all that and yet Raymond Zarek came out very heavily against the film when it came out we don't know whether he had an angle because Oliver Stone was never going to offer him enough to be involved mm-hmm. or to give his approval but Raymond Zarek was on record as saying this film presents only this side of Morrison it didn't present the Jim who I knew and mm-hmm. you know, it, of course you know, in wanting to present what he thought was an entertaining film and especially as often happens with a biopic we don't get a well-rounded characterization of the figure under scrutiny and if Oliver Stone says right well I want to do a film about the 60s man I want to do a film about the counterculture man it won't do to have Morrison as possibly a jovial guy who liked to have a beer with Mm -hmm. the rest of the band and who just cracked a few jokes now and again and you know maybe had a reasonable side to him no we have to show Jim Morrison the shaman the poet the lizard king the guy who quoted poetry in everyday conversations and I think it was Raymond Zarek I read in an interview we said Jim Morrison didn't go out in public and say I am the lizard king I can do anything (laughs) he saved that for Celebration of the Lizard and for the song Not to Touch the Earth which comes from Celebration of the Lizard so we understand that when you're making a film you're going to take some liberties with the truth because it's got to be entertaining well i think even more so with this i think stone is i mean he's the perfect director for this because he's all and this is the perfect film for him because it's all bombast yes and it's all assault and it's all in your face and stone is only interested in the myth He's not actually right. interested in the truth. He's just, right. you know, because, well, we'll get to it. But, uh, yeah, I think this is Stone pretending he is a myth maker here. What you were saying about Ray Manzarek being against the film, there's there's more to it than just that. Because I read an interview with John Dinsmore. And mm. Dinsmore was saying that because Ray was a film student where he first met Morrison, he actually wanted to kind of guide the film through filmmaking along with Stone. And Stone kept brushing him off and saying, no, 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 like, I don't want it to go like that. And it even got to the point, John said, where they were actually trying to keep Ray off the set. Wow. Because Ray really wanted to have some type of input in the actual filmmaking process, right? When they were at the premiere of the film, Dinsmore was with Amy Madigan, and apparently he looked up and at the film, and he's like, I don't remember naked women on stage and all this stuff. And, <laughs> and Amy Madigan said to him, she said, John, man, like they're going to basically paste your life on the side of a building like 20 feet tall, and you know it's going to be a complete exaggeration of everything that you know was you, but it's not you. And that's just it. I mean, like for example, yeah. Morris, correct me if I'm wrong. Was there not a Beatles cartoon or not? 
There was a Beatles cartoon. Okay. And did it do anything that negatively affect uh, the record sales of Beatles records? I don't believe it did. In fact, I think it got maybe some uh, younger kids onto uh, buying some records because I like the cartoons. Right. What I'm trying to get at is this is just a film. It's not any type of document of reality or oh, it's, not, it, you know, it's not a yeah. biography in any sense. I mean, like mm. people used to say to Stephen King, look at what the hell they're doing with your books. And he'd say, they're not doing anything with my books. My books are sitting up there on the shelf, man. They're on touched it's just a movie yeah that's not you know, what he said about stanley kubrick though <laughs> that's another conversation but right look. <laughs> but, but i mean it just gets to a point where i think like bernie said you know stone just wanted to basically focus on what he wanted to focus on in this film he really didn't want to present the story of a band he wanted to basically present what he felt he got from the whole experience so it's a film about an egotistical narcissist directed by an egotistical narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> exactly. How could it be anything else? Yeah. Um, it's interesting, I think, that you said that Manzarek wanted to have some sort of input into how the film looked because, you know, he met Jim in film school. So presumably was you know wanting to put something in a sort of countercultural way he wanted to present something that would be more befitting to the image that we all know of Jim Morrison as this big countercultural figure and it looks like to me and I, I should say right from the outset this was my first time watching the film I'd avoided it for many years I'd avoided yeah. it for all the reasons that you stated before that you know it, it, people come out and said this film is just a chunk of shit and I thought well yeah. I love the music too much to want to have to give the time a day to this and just sort of like watching the film you know, for the first time for the show it seemed to me like Oliver Stone wanted to have a few bob in either camp he wanted to present a fairly straight ahead narrative but he wanted to present something that seemed a little bit mystical so he goes and presents the ghost of this Navajo Indian who always seems to crop up when Jim is about to do something stupid and there's this moment at the very beginning of the film where Jim is driving through the desert with his family I think in 1949 he's just a young boy and they witness the aftermath of an accident where Native American is killed somewhere I think in, in it was in the California desert and so the ghost of this Navajo Indian keeps appearing at moments in his life and they never explain explicitly say this in the film, but uh, apparently Morrison always thought that his ghost inhabited Morrison's own body. So that accident, you mean the one where his parents were killed? (laughs) (laughs) Right, yes. (laughs) The whole image there is Oliver Stone trying to have it both ways. He's trying to say, right, well, I'll tell you a fairly straightforward story and as my usual criticism of biopics is always going to be off a shopping list. Yeah, we're going to tell this bit and we're going to tell that bit yeah, yeah. rather than it being... Oh my a, God, a, a the, the scene story. where they're uh, writing, they're practicing and uh, coming up with Light My Fire. Right. Robbie! Hey man, can you give me another Can you give me about five minutes? i got to figure out some kind of intro. Let's let them work. You like that? And uh, Ray Manzarek's like, just, hey, go out for five minutes, guys. Let me just work on the intro for this. <laughs> that is just teeth-gratingly embarrassing, isn't it? Oh, that's, uh, oh, that's real look-at-your-shoes moment. There's a lot of dialogue in this film that sort of yeah. uh, wanting to look at my shoes moment. Wasn't Oliver Stone there? Doesn't he not actually remember how people used to talk? Because some of this was just way too many groovies and mans and far outs. Whoa, that's scary, man. I have to yeah. say, though, that the one scene of the film where the, the use of the word groovy was very, very amusing, and I'm, I'm sure you know the scene I'm talking about, the whole Ed Sullivan sequence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Boys, boys, meet Mr. Sullivan. 
right, fellas. Fellas, just, just wait. I heard your record. I'd light that fire. Light your fire. Like that. Just uh, light good. my fire. Great, fine. fine. Just really, really fine. Just well, I have one little thing to bring up. It's a small thing, but it's important. The guys at Network have told us that they have a little problem with one of your lyrics, the lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. See, because you can't say higher on Network, so they asked if you could say instead, girl, we can't get much better. Can you dig that? How about, uh, girl, you couldn't bite my wire? Uh, I don't think standards and practices would. And you know, fellas, why don't you have a nice big smile on your face when you get out there? There's no point in being sullen. You know what I mean? Well, just, just do it. Kind of a sullen group, eh? You boys should know Mr. Sullivan is considering you boys for four more shows. You dig? We dig. We dig, and we, I'm going to work it out. Just give me five minutes, okay? Okay. okay. All right, groovy. Groovy. It's groovy. Just okay. give me five, okay? Have a great show, okay? Because even there, they're sort of showing that the word groovy in the mainstream use, sort of trying to show the obvious divide between yeah. them, the suits, the man, and the yeah. counterculture. But <laughs> or, There's another part that makes me laugh, too, at the beginning of the film. I don't know if you guys spotted him, but there's actually a cameo by Eric Burden. Oh, no, I didn't uh, catch that. Who's, who's where, where they're backstage after a gig at the beginning of the, the film, and Ray Manzarek's smoking a joint, and this guy comes up and says, hey, man, can you put out that grass? You know, they can smell it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, was, that, Eric, was that Eric Burton? That's Eric Burton, yeah. Oh. Why? But I just thought it was funny. Can you put out that grass? They can smell it. <laughs> 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 the other thing that makes me laugh about this film is that you can see in a lot of this film where Oliver Stone was priming, setting up things for natural-born killers that would come down the pipe. Oh, sure, because, yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of visual shit in this film that is yeah. very, very identical to natural-born killers. A lot of the stuff in the desert, then there's other quick edits and just where a lot of it's almost shot like a rock video. And this is another thing, too, that makes me laugh, is that when they go off into the desert and, you know, and they're all doing peyote... And it's hilarious where Meg Ryan's throwing up on him. And he's like, you know, you'll get through it. And she's like, (laughs) I have to make a confession here. You know, I may have or may have not had some experiences in my youth. Okay. But what are you saying here, Tim? Hang on. But but if I had, I I couldn't remember so many goddamn lens flares. (laughs) When they were tripping, it just seemed like lens flare, lens flare. Look at your eyes. And then he's got those marble eyes, like those, you know, which were obviously like so CG to me. It was ridiculous, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's weird how looking at the film now, it's actually, it looks quite dated. It looks really, really, really like a 90s film. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously it was 91, but it's, it's kind of almost wearing that badge with pride and it's so identifiable as being something from the early 90s mm-hmm. like you say just those kind of visual effects the way the whole thing's lit i didn't remember this but this is six degrees of separation to steven seagal in that this was produced by mario Casar, wasn't it right and then wasn't he the one who was indicted for laundering russian mafia money right. or something right right yeah, right yeah. yeah later on yeah crazy so russian mafia money didn't go into making the doors or maybe it did. Who knows? <laughs> but we won't talk about that. No, no. Stum, stum. No, th- those are the weird scenes inside the gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, th- just coming back to that desert scene for a moment. 
I'm sort of thinking back and thinking forward. The whole walking around the desert made me think, oh yeah, they've watched the monkey's head one too many mm-hmm. times. Yeah, totally. but I, just, yeah. I just sort of kept on thinking of when's Mickey Delenn's going to come out and try to uh, get a can of Coke from a vending machine. I'm pretty sure Oliver Stone had watched that and was ripping that off. That scene, and like a lot of other sort of scenes in the film, is dealing with stuff that at this point has become such a cliche yes. that it's it's difficult to take that stuff seriously. I mean, oh, tripping in the desert. Romantic comedy that always has the couch on a rooftop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh Looking goodness. out over Venice Beach or whatever. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's it, full of stuff like that. And to be honest, I can't remember. I mean, I saw it at the time. I, I saw it at the theatre. But I don't remember whether that felt fresh at the time or whether right. even then that was cliche, you know. But certainly at this point, it's just ticking off all those boxes, isn't it, you know? But when you see that scene in the monkey's head, even there it looks like it's a bit of a piss take. Not necessarily sure. sending up scenes of people walking around the desert. Because uh, at least in a countercultural sense, that was still something new, I think. But everything about that film is maybe sort of taking a bit of a swipe at yeah. counterculture as well as embracing it. Just to see Oliver Stone taking that so seriously really made me laugh. But I've got to say that the other thing that I watched this and had a real aha moment was that scene in Wayne's World 2 finally made sense as to where they were taking the piss out of. I'm Jim Morrison. Cool. Who's he? A weird naked Indian. Cool. Why have you brought me here? To help you find some answers, Wayne. (laughs) Yeah. And Jim. Oh, wow. Jim Morrison. Yeah, you will put on a concert. And it's all out of Oliver Stone's The Doors. Um, Right. 25 years too late. Uh, I'm only realising that, but I'm glad that I finally did realise that. It's interesting to see Oliver Stone taking that seriously when those before him and those after him were just taking the piss out of the whole notion. We've said in the, the beginning of this episode that this is just a film and, you know, I mean, it's not absolute fact. But did you guys happen to see the documentary on Danny Fields, Danny Says? I haven't yet. No, is it good? No, I haven't got around to it it's yet. It's really good, really, really good. But Danny Fields was the one who actually introduced Jim Morrison to Nico. Oh, and, wow. and in the film, you know, it's her meeting Jim at the warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still trying to figure out who the Paul Williams character was supposed to be. <laughs> yes. You know who was playing Andy, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Crispin Glover. Yeah, he was right. great. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, look, I'm, I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that because I was watching thing. Oh, gosh, he looks familiar. He looks familiar. And I, yeah. it didn't strike me until you mentioned that. Yeah. Yes. But in the documentary, Danny says that Danny was working for Electra and he wound up, you know, really pissing off Morrison because apparently. There's a story he tells where out on the West Coast, he put Nico and Morrison together and they went off to some house and they did acid and screwed or whatever. And Morrison was so fucked up that he wanted to drive away. He couldn't stand Nico. Danny Fields didn't want Morrison to get hurt because and he couldn't drive like Danny Fields couldn't drive. Mm. So he hid Morrison's keys. And Morrison was going off on Danny Field saying, dude, where's my fucking keys? Give me the fucking keys. And I don't know where they are, you know. And so Morrison was stuck in this house with Nico 
Well, it was full on tripping, right? And and it was just like there's only enough room in one you know, one house for one ego. You know what I mean? Like yeah, two yeah. of them, you know, they're going to implode or something, right? So after that, Danny was basically persona non grata with the Doors, even though they were still with Electra, you know. But it's a really funny thing about just how petulant and how Danny feels is trying to do a good thing and trying to say, well, hey, like she's really interesting, and he's really interesting. Let's see what happens. You know, he's almost like a like a scientist, like some type of mad yeah. scientist. <laughs> Let's put these two together in a petri dish and see what happens, you know. And it's like, oh shit, uh oh, I guess that didn't work. There was a documentary came out, I don't know, maybe about eight nine years ago. Uh, the one direct, with Johnny Depp, narrated by Johnny Depp. Yeah, the director yeah. Tom DeCilio, who, uh, who yeah. made Living in Oblivion, which was one of my right. favorite '90s films. It's, I think the documentary is called When You're Strange. I haven't seen it in right. a long time, but oh, so you've obviously seen that too. That was the one that was fully supported by the Doors. Okay, they really got behind that 100, percent and it was funny because. Because Dinsmore actually said where this was a facsimile, that was the real the thing. Fact, the real yeah. thing. Right. What you doing there? Nothing. Okay, both of you out of there. No one's allowed backstage. Come on, let's go. You idiot. Don't you know who this is? It's cool. It's cool. I'm with the band. No, listen, let's go. Hey, come on. Cool hey. thing. Fucking hippie. Fuck you. You motherfucker. Ah! Ah! Before we um, continue to rip into the problems that we had with the film, and I I wanted to give a little bit of praise and credit where credit's due. One thing that Oliver Stone did incredibly with this film was the live sequences. And, you know, to be fair, there are about three or four big live sequences in the film. One that's, I think, at the Whiskey or Go-Go where they're doing the end and all the rest are in big concert venues. And for my money, those moments look like there's an audience, like an audience of thousands there to see a real band. And just the logistics of doing something like that would not have been easy. I mean, just imagine getting thousands of people in there and say, you have to be here for at least the next 12 hours while we set up shots and get this pretend band of actors pretending that they're the doors and you have to pretend like you're going to be really into it. But yet he seems to manage to make it work. Their level of enthusiasm, the crowd. And there's that moment, I think it's at the New Haven concert, where Val Kilmer is walking through the audience and the camera's in front of him and just sort of following him as he's walking through the audience. I, I credit where credit's due. Those live sequences for me were absolutely amazing. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I think the film in general, if you're just talking about it from a technical point of view, I, just well, how it's, Stone it, put it together. It's, 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 part, it's partly know, technical, but it's also exciting to watch, I think. Sure, yeah. It, it, that, those, that sort those of scene my particularly, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, look, we've all seen live concert films and some of them do leave a lot to be desired. I, I think probably the worst concert film that I've ever seen is actually from someone who I really admire. And that was Jim Jarmusch, who'd gone and made a Neil Young and Crazy Horse film that was based on the Ark World, what became the Ark World Records. And, you know, I'm a big Crazy Horse fan and I love those live records, but truthfully that is probably the dullest concert film i've ever seen in my life really concert films can your value can vary because often you have to be there but i think yeah sure stone well like like you say that's that's what he, he manages to convey that really well doesn't he you can really feel that electricity in the audience and particularly the new haven 
concert, as you were saying, as it's building up to the infamous appearance of Little Jim. Or... That's actually the Florida concert. Oh, but... no, it is. You're quite oh, right, yeah. yes. No, New, New Haven right. was, yeah. was the one where you know, he'd been with his uh, girlfriend. Pepper spray. That's right, yeah, the, pe- yeah. the pepper spray. Yeah. And uh, mind you, they sort of they rubbed that off fairly quickly. We don't really know much about the court appearances and what happened after that. That's sort of pretty... Yeah, but, you know, Stone wasn't interested in that, was he? It's interesting. I was reading a uh, feature on a website recently. It's the Please Kill Me website, mm-hmm. which is run by Legs McNeil and I can't remember her name, the people who wrote the, the book, oh. Please Kill Me. But th- there was a feature on there about some new testimonials that have come forward about the New Haven concert and what actually went down and, uh, you know, how the accepted facts aren't necessarily the case. Hmm. Um, but certainly there were some pictures from the concert and... It looks absolutely nothing like what Stone did. It literally just looks almost like a, a kind of some sort of VA type hall with just a curtain in the background as the backdrop. It looks really, really kind of unassuming compared to, uh, to what uh, Stone was doing here. If, if you sort of look at the scene where the doors are playing Light My Fire on Ed Sullivan's show, and they're on a set and you see smoke coming up from smoke machines at the back of the set, and if you go look at the video footage, it was all very plain. There was nothing like that. It was, it was almost like Stone thinking, well, you know, in 1991, well, the internet hasn't been invented. No one's going to be able to see this film footage. Sure, so I think yeah. I can go there. And, and another, it's a little thing, but I think it's important in terms of what it conveys about Morrison's character. So that whole moment backstage where the uh, publicist for the Sullivan show says, look, we'd like you to change the words from baby we couldn't get much higher to baby we couldn't do it any better. I mean, it's a famous story. And of course, Morrison just goes and sings baby we couldn't get much higher. Anyway, if you watch the original footage from the Ed Sullivan show, he's just singing it because it's the lyric. He's not making Mm -hmm. a big deal of it. But of course, in the Stone film, it has him saying, we couldn't get much higher, yeah! That's right into his, the camera, he, yeah. He's, he's sticking the finger to the Sullivan show, but that's not it's how a, it went down. And I, it's, I just, just, it's, it's stone embellishing, isn't it? Not to reiterate the fact that, again, this is not a complete 100% biography. I think that what happens in all, almost all kind of films on musicians of the past is I think that you never ever see it bare bones the way it really was because it's always seen through through years of rose-colored glasses. Mm. It's like telling somebody about a party you went to and they weren't there. Mm. And, 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 yeah. and no matter how, how boring you tell them the party was and no matter how matter of fact you tell them the party was they're just imagining this party that's completely off the hook and so then directors i mean if they were just to give you something matter of factly that would satisfy the people that that were there and it might satisfy the musicians but it sure as hell won't satisfy all the people that are going to put asses in seats to pay for that uh, the budget of that movie yeah sure yeah but how does that make you feel as someone who studied history at university tim i mean history is your passion and does it not make you annoyed taking aside the economics of wanting to get bums on seats and knowing that embellishment is more interesting sometimes than the actual fact but how does that make you feel as a historian 
I actually took a course when I did my degree in history, historian's craft, about the history of history and why we document history and what we consider to be relevant. And my professor at the time, he had said, you know, that any time you try to, uh, you know, glean some type of entertainment out of presenting history, you're going to unconditionally fall into uh, not being able to present it critically. It's almost impossible because when you're trying to present something as entertainment, it's like unless you're entertained by, you know, a, a couple of uh, hundred watt amps and a and a white curtain in the background, then this isn't a film for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It, you know, unless you're completely enamored with what really happened and you have some type of background knowledge in the events. It's like, for example, like the Kennedy assassination, the Zapruder film. Now imagine if, you know, and Stone did that film as well, JFK. Imagine if they redid the Zapruder film where everybody is beautiful and under 30. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's what people want to see. And it's just like, well, the facts are there. There's there's a president and he was shot and he had a first lady there. So it's got to be historically accurate. Well, no, it's not. A lot of times, you know, when you present real factual history the way it was, it's not absolutely palatable to a majority of people. I like to see authenticity and I like to see things played out for people that don't know about history and people that don't know what really happened. It's kind of unavoidable to take a lot of liberties. The issue is one can never truly know what happened anywhere unless one observes it because you are relying on the facts being kind of refracted through the person or the persons or the tens of thousands of persons who've relayed that information down over the years. Nobody ever really knows 100%, do they? You know, there's always that caveat at the very end of every film in the credits where it's like, you know, anything coincidental or whatever is just, I mean, you know, like the, I don't know how to exactly say it, but you know what I'm saying. This wasn't true or that wasn't true or whatever. It was all purely coincidental, right? They, they, They always have to put that in there as kind of a legal cover your ass type of caveat. Again, like, you know, like John Dinsmore sitting there watching this film going, hey, I don't remember that. Well, this isn't really your life. It's just, yeah. a, you know, mm-hmm. it's a facsimile, dude. I think I'm fucked up, man. I'm not thinking right. Look at your eyes, man. Your death. I'm afraid of my father. I can't be what they want me to be. Maybe you should kill your father. I'm in pain, man. I feel the universe functioning perfectly, but I'm still perfectly locked inside myself. Instead of oneness, I feel isolation. But you're alive, Ray. I feel it. I'm scared, Jim. It's beautiful. I'm still scared. Well, when they're in the desert, he's talking about the snake and he's talking about all the scales and we're all on the scales of the snake. Kind of reminded me watching this of, you guys know the comedian Bill Hicks? Yeah, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah it's well, just a ride. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a ride. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a ride. You know, man, like life is just a ride. That's what I really felt watching this film where he's just kind of like, I'm just going to ride it out, man. Just riders on the storm. <laughs> but at the same time. I was saying something to Morris earlier in the week while we were talking, and I was saying that I don't know what it is, but there's something always about the character of Jim Morrison, not in this film, but like the real character of Jim Morrison, that I always equated having a connection of kind of Marlon Brando with. 
<laughs> I can kind of see that, yeah. Where there's this whole thing about being up his own ass. Yeah, artists who take themselves and their craft way, way, way too seriously. Yeah, and figure yeah, they ex- can get away with any shit because exactly, of it. Exactly, exactly. It's uh, the, the recent Gilbert Gottfried podcast yep. where um, I can't remember who it was, but was talking about when De Niro was going to sort something out for the wife of somebody they both mutually knew. And Marlon Brando's lawyer was like, uh, oh, yeah, he'll he'll answer your facts, but only if you address it to his cats. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And yeah. it's like, what the fuck? Why, why are you even doing yeah. that? You're an asshole. Yeah. My God. But I saw Apocalypse Now the first time with my dad when I think it was about maybe 12 years old or something like that. But then I watched it again, you know, with a more critical eye when I was about 17 or 18. And I remember, you know, seeing him playing Kurtz. And the first thing I remember coming into my mind was, man, why are you getting off with all this Jim Morrison shit? (laughs) (laughs) That's the way it's almost like Coppola is playing him, like Morrison. And he's, Mm -hmm. you know, and and you could actually see if Morrison hadn't died, you could probably see him hiding somewhere off in Cambodia or somewhere, you know, in well, some he'd have village. The, uh, he'd have the island next to Marlon's island, wouldn't he? Right, right. Yeah, but, I, yeah. but I'm just saying, and he'd, he'd be that he'd be that fat Buddha dude sitting in his own little temple with his own little harem of like 24-year-old yeah. little kids, right? And you could just see him as like, today I clap my hand with the sky. What's <laughs> <laughs> you know, and All these girls would be like, Woo! Oh, Jim, you're so deep. Oh, you know, and it'd be like, to tell you the truth, I'm not a fan of Brando either. And it's that whole thing again, that kind of pompousness, and that whole arrogance. That it- well, it's, it's it's interesting. You, you can you can say the same thing about Brando. And that when they were early on in developing their craft and what they were doing, you can totally see what it was. You can totally see, wow, they're doing something really interesting here. Yep. Something new is happening. But within a matter of months or years, it just turns purely into ego and they like you say, they just crawl up their own buzz. Look at a young Marlon Brando and a young Jim Morrison when they were just starting out. Well, some you know, something's changing here. This is fucking incredible. You can also say that they both also had their own last tango in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Patricia Keneally, are you Patricia Keneally? You must be Pamela. You actually put your dick in this woman, Jim? Well, sometimes, yeah. I want to ask you guys, we've talked a lot about, you know, that how the film presents the times and Morrison and so on. I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about the performances. I'm not really touched on that yet. Yep, what do you guys think of uh, Val Kilmer in this? Playing himself? Val Kilmer, <laughs> if there's such a thing as method acting, I would hate to have been around him prior to the film being Good. made. But he was completely believable as Morrison. Pretty much, I'd compare, oh, yeah. him, I'd compare him to Paul Dano, who played as young Brian Wilson in Love and Murder. Mercy. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I thought that both of those guys just absolutely inhabited their role. And in Val Kilmer's place, I mean, yeah, sure, there was the mimicry, there was the voice, but it was beyond that. He walked like Jim. He had the mannerisms. He slouched like Jim Morrison. Oh, yeah. He was, he was pulling some Danny Lewis shit with this, man, for sure. They've done interviews with the other members of the Doors, and they were spooked mm. when they saw them. Right, yeah. They were really spooked. I mean, Dinsmore said, man, like he said, when he saw them on set, he had to do a double take because he said it was just uncanny. Yeah. I think uh, one thing Kilmer doesn't quite get in the film, and I don't know whether this was a choice on 
Stone's part, whether it was in the editing or whatever. But as much of an asshole as Morrison was, you can't deny he had a certain kind of dark charisma to him. Mm. And I don't think Val Kilmer quite pulls that off. I mean, there's, there's a scene near the start where he's reading Pam some poetry. I mean, that's like every fucking five minutes in the film, I know, but... The, the first uh, time where he climbs up onto that balcony and he's sort of reciting some poetry to her and she's like wow man that's really deep that's beautiful and it's not and Kilmer's just not selling it at all and yet she totally just kind of falls into it and there's there's a few instances like that where you know it's, it's supposed to be the, the Morrison charisma which is drawing these people to him and I just I don't think he quite gets that I've been kind of said that that's more Oliver Stone's fault than Val Kilmer's fault because so, yeah because yeah, if Stone yeah, is okay. presenting Jim Morrison as narcissist and someone who is sucked into this vortex of partly his own making, then that's the picture of him that he wants to present, which is obviously, I think, to the film's detriment because we as the audience have to say, right, well, yeah, he was an asshole, but we want to know why it was that people were attracted to him in the first place. And yeah, I agree. Yeah. I don't think that's Kilmer's fault. I think that's Stone's fault. And right. yeah. just sort of pointing out something about that scene that you mentioned where he climbs onto the balcony, that whole moment just made me laugh. I mean, one thing that I'd read yeah. was that besides it not being historically accurate because they actually met at a Doors gig. But take that away. Right. How creepy is that? The, this total stranger says, I followed you from the beach. Absolutely. Hey. Hi. Got a problem with doors? Waste of time. I followed you from the beach. You followed me? Why? Because you're the one. Really? You followed me? Uh, and why are you here? Because you're the one. That happens in real life, and you'd be either spraying him with mace or kicking things. him in the nuts. And around that know, time was about, you know, that was like at the end of the 60s, right? Around the Manson family, too, and all of that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My exact note that I'd written down at that point in the film is Jim is a creepy dick. Yes. Right. He's bipolar, and the way he pulls people in, he's like a vortex. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, there, yeah. there's that scene when him and Pam are getting in that fight, and she's he chucks an ashtray at her, and she's throwing shit at him, and he's like, would you die for me? Would oh, you die? Oh, I'll die for you. I'll die. And he's hanging off that window ledge. And within seconds, he's like, I love you. I love you. Let's screw. Uh, you know? And it's just like, <laughs> it's just, holy. It's such a, it's just, he's a, he was an absolute child, just a manipulative asshole. Right. Want to take and responsibility that, for anything, yeah. And the other thing, too, that made me laugh was when, you know, he finally gets together with that reporter chick, and they're in her den, and she's doing doing the whole blood ritual thing with him and he's like she's like okay cut your finger and he's like i can't cut myself and she's like what are you a child he goes you yeah, cut there you go you know you cut me i can't cut myself oh don't be such a child if i do it you have to do it and then she cuts him and he's like whoa you know and like you know he thinks he's deep and then she's like i'll show you deep yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> come here and then he's just like Woo! You know, and I think the film doesn't know how it wants to present him. It's so, weird, isn't it? Because I think that's very much the case. But at the same yeah. time, Stone really isn't interested in any of the other characters. I was thinking a little bit about what I feel is a much, much, much better film. And that was Backbeat, the story about the Beatles' time in Hamburg. But like this film 
it focuses on John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe. So Paul McCartney and George Harrison, uh, we only see Ringo for a moment. So Pete Best really completely presented as flat 2D cartoon characters. And the same thing. I wouldn't necessarily say that Raymond Zarek is presented as a, a flat character in this film. It, it's probably the least of the thankless roles in the film. I mean, for a film that's called The Doors. He's presented as big, fairly sort of white bread, though, isn't he? That's just he, pretty much I, the, the voice of reason and the, the almost like the, the party pooper in some sort of ways, you know? One aspect, and I know that Stone wanted to show what he wanted to show, but I think it would have been just a little bit nice for one more part of the storytelling building, if you will, was that we see at the beginning of the film Jim Morrison and Raymond Zarek meeting on the beach, meeting on Venice Beach and becoming friends, which, you know, was a famous part of the Doors law. It's a great fucking lyrics, man. Yeah? Yeah. You write this? You got others in here? Yeah, bunch, man. It's like, I had a whole this concert in my head, you know? I see it all, Ray, like... Uh, what the hell happened to you in the desert, man? You know, ecstasy Get a rock and roll band together and make a million so bucks. stuff, Ray. Got tons of songs. Oh, about to explode, Jim. And beyond that, because it's just something off the shopping list that is to tick off, every other interaction with Manzarek is either them playing on stage or Manzarek saying, hey man, where were you? you we had, we, the band took a vote and you should have been there. Yeah. He's just telling, there's nothing about their friendship. And Ray Manzarek had, in real life had always gone on record saying, Jim was my friend. This film never showed that side of him. And I, I would like to have seen yeah. that friendship. That would have been something that would have been you know, right. possibly still not presented accurately but at least it would have been another part of the story but no it's going to be about Jim the narcissist and Jim the dick to his girlfriend and and poor uh, Frank Whaley and Kevin Dillon they get even less to do don't oh, they Robbie Krieger no. we get, gets nothing yeah pretty much yeah 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 and all Kevin Dillon does is seem to be pretty much a party pooper as well right, he's, a, he's, a, he's a miserable don't bastard don't do drugs he? man <laughs> I have a question that the more I'm thinking about it after watching it is, do you think that Jim really started off from the get-go as that much of a swollen bellend? Or was it just those around him that basically uh, perpetuated it, that added to it? You, you look at that scene with Mimi Rogers mm. mm-hmm. you know, when she's a photographer. She's photographing him, yep, yeah, yep. yeah. Jim, you can be whatever you want to be. Like, you can be, you are it. And then he's saying, where are the doors? And she's like, forget the doors. Like, it's you. And yeah. then there's that other scene at the beginning when the promoter dude, the one, the record exec guy is talking to Ray and the guys and saying, hey, you know, we can put you guys in the studio right now. We got to get this done. And then a second later, he's over there talking to Jim going, hey, listen, this is fucking guys, man. We want you. It makes me wonder how much of the whole narcissistic asshole emerged from the beginning or, or whether it was just constructed through a lot of the people uh, that were surrounding him, that were enabling him. If you go a couple of scenes even earlier than that, we get a sense where people were not praising him to the skies, but where he's showing his no. pretentious film to the film students right. at UCLA. And they're all saying, this is bullshit, this is pretentious, wanky stuff. But when confronted right. with the chance to counteract what it is that they have to say about his film, he says, I quit. 
all about I believe in my vision. It's all right from the start. He believes in himself. And in some films' cases, that can be presented as a positive thing. The person who believed in his own vision when no one else did and ended up doing great things without being a narcissist. But in Stone's case, he wants to present the picture. No, he was a dick right from the beginning. The only time where you think maybe he's not is the scene at the very beginning where we see Jim as a 10-year-old and the scene that I thought, I I was wondering where they were going to take it towards the very end where Morrison is at the birthday party for Raymond Zarek's child and you see for no apparent reason Jim as a 10-year-old looking at Jim as a 27-year-old presumably to say, right, get a look at yourself as a grown-up. Is this where you want to head? But they don't do anything with it. We will never know the truth of what Morrison was like. I mean, you can take Manzarek's word that there was another side to him, but there's too much of the myth and too much of the law has been written about for, as you said earlier on, Tim, for history to be accurately presented. So I think at this stage, we um, should probably sort of like just present some final thoughts on the film. Sort of gone and said our things that we didn't think that worked very well with the film but overall I didn't watch this film all these years so there are possibly people like me out there who love the music too much to want to watch this and either have their image of Morrison ruined or or have Stone's impression of Morrison ruin our feelings about the music so going around the table Tim would you recommend anyone watch this for any reason at all? Well, sure, but I mean, there's a caveat. I mean, I like to watch music-based films or semi-biographies or whatever to try to glean something new that I didn't know about the artist or to try to see things from a different angle or something I'd never considered, right? And I think that a, a film succeeds when it does that, you know, when it really presents something new to the fans or presents something where the fans will be like, wow, like, okay, I would never have seen it like that or I've never felt that before. But for this film, if there was to be kind of a review of this film, it would be like, yep, that's the doors. <laughs> that's it. Yep. I mean, there's nothing in this film that really presents anything new to, to Doors fanatics. Right. Or, you know, even people that are remotely interested in the Doors. I mean, there's nothing that you're not going to glean from documentaries, already from documentaries or from footage of the Doors. And that's not to say this film is a waste of time because I think this is Val Kilmer at his best, mm-hmm. even beyond Batman or any of that. But I think that the guys that are playing the roles are doing it really well. And, you know, as much as I'm not really a fan of, of Stone's uh, stylings, you know, the film doesn't, it hasn't aged well at all in terms of visuals and everything else with it. If you're remotely interested in the doors, yeah, this is, this is worth a watch. Bernie, this was your pick. Are you glad that you picked it? Yes. Yeah, I got to say, um, I enjoyed it. I, I like it. I know it's factually all over the place. I know there's a lot of things wrong with it. But just as a spectacle, if you can just kind of turn off all your uh, little niggly kind of pointing out of, yeah, that's wrong, that's incorrect, that didn't work, he didn't say that. If you don't approach it as the absolute truth, I think it's a fun film for me personally. I think, I mean, obviously it's a period piece, but it also kind of works as a snapshot of where Hollywood and mainstream movies were in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, that is almost as interesting as the subject matter mm. to me at this point, watching it again. 
looking at you know the kind of caliber of people who are in this and at the time you know at the time Val Kilmer was huge Kyle uh, McLachlan was pretty huge Meg Ryan was pretty huge or you know all these people and the fact that they would do something like this it would be funded by a big studio and it would be directed by a fucking madman like Oliver Stone right in, in that respect alone now I, I think it's interesting but yeah it's it's definitely flawed but personally I like it if, if you're a rabid Doors fan You'll either appreciate it or be dismayed at how much they get wrong, but I think it's worth watching. Look, I think even though I've come down a lot on a whole lot of aspects about the film that really didn't appeal to me, and the fact that it was, once again, a bit of a shopping list in the way that films that came after it, like Ray and Walk the Line, have been. And yet, I'd be a liar if I said I didn't find it entertaining, uh, which I I, I think is possibly what you're saying, Bernie. It's a very flawed film. I'm not even necessarily referring to its historical accuracy, which I think, you know, is beyond doubt, but just sitting in front of it and watching it saying right is this an entertaining film and i think probably my big problem was that it went from this bit to this bit to this bit and i think hang on who's that character what's what's their role and how do they get to be so big the last thing that we're just doing a casual rehearsal of light my fire and what happened there there's a thing i guess for a biopic even a flawed biopic it leaves you to fill in a lot of the gaps doesn't it it just assumes you know this is the next part we're going to go to and you know all the other stuff yeah between you know how we got here yeah well for the people coming into the 90s who weren't there they won't necessarily know a lot of that legend and for instance there was one character i sort of had to look up who he was a, a poet called tom baker who was jim morrison's close friend and in the film played by Michael Madsen who I really really like but right. he gets absolutely fuck all to do so I'm thinking well what's he even there for I'm wondering if there's like another 30 minutes of him on the cutting room floor but look taking those things aside I watched it and I still thought okay I was entertained by it I'm not rushing back to watch it again in a hurry I've watched films that I found absolutely deathly dull and struggled right. to stay awake and this was not that type of film so mm-hmm. it's it's faint praise but I'm, I'm going to say if you're a Doors fan out there and you want to watch something that then I'd probably say, you know, watch the Tom DeCilio documentary. But yeah, probably come to this. It was a mistake on my part to not go see it in the cinema when it came out. So yeah, I'm glad that you did pick it, Bernie, but I'm probably not going to be watching it again. How do you, the thing is though, if you saw it back when it was released, do you think you would have had a different reaction to it? I mean, I know people who, when they initially saw this at the cinema, they actually walked out because they were so disgusted. Uh, Look, I I don't think I would have done that. I mean, I'm not one of those... Despite how I'm sounding, I'm not a purist. But do you think I've that ne- almost 30 years in between, as you know, since it originally came out, has made a difference to how you view it? Impossible to say. If I hadn't yeah. seen it at the time, I, I don't know what 1991 me. If I would have thought of it much differently, I, I mean, admittedly, I was very coloured by the things I was reading, saying this is just a chunk of shit. Every review that I read had damned it, but I can't remember if it was damned because it was historically inaccurate or if it was a 90s viewing of the 60s phenomenon. And this is Oliver Stone saying, this is what the 60s were like, man. But no, it Mm -hmm. was one aspect. And that's possibly the problem with any band biography, saying, right, well, here are the doors, and they were the center of the 60s. Well, no, they weren't. Even if you want to explore the 60s purely through a musical persona, and the 60s was about so much more than just the way how music shaped it. There was world conflict, and there was politics, and there was film, and there was so much that was going on historically, and we're just sort of saying, we're going to capture the 60s 
through one band. And okay, granted, Oliver Stone saying, right, the focus of this film is one man's story. It should have been one band's story, but you're left with this impression that this is the 60s and the doors were all that was groovy and psychedelic about it. And that's part of what I take objection to. And I think that's what a lot of critics at the time were trying mm-hmm. to say that they objected to about this film. It got me thinking about the end, not the song, the end of the film, mm-hmm. where it pans right up there into his monument there in the cemetery in France. And it's kind of ironic because a friend of mine, she had actually just recently been to Europe and she was actually in that cemetery and she was she was blown away by how many historical figures are actually buried in that cemetery. I mean, legendary writers and all kinds of philosophers and just all kinds of people that you would never imagine. And right alongside them is there's old Jimmy Morrison. Like you're saying, some people say this was the center of, of this time. And it's like, no, there was all these things around it that were bigger than that. It, it's, it's just, just a, a fraction of it, a isn't it? A fraction yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. right. And yet when all these people go to that cemetery, they don't go to see all those famous philosophers and uh, you know those figures in history. Everybody goes to smoke a joint in front of the grave of Jim Morrison. It's it like, says it all about us, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. Yeah. All right, on that note, I think we can conclude our conversation about The Doors and start thinking about episode 51. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Timmy, sing us a few more bars. We've got you singing on the podcast. No, Uh, that's all for me. Morris, you have to play the end end of the uh, the episode. You realise that you've got to play the full, whatever it is, nine-minute version. Don't think I'll be playing the full 11-minute version of it, but I think I might play the Oedipal portion. Morris! Yeah. I, I want, want to you to talk tell about me episode. What the next episode is. Yeah, I was I was leading to that. Thank you. Episode fifty one of See Here podcast. Now, regular listeners to this show will know that we tend to sort of go. Each one of us tends to take a pick as to what the next episode of the month is going to be. However, at the start of every year, we always ask our listeners or the people on our Facebook group. I hope that they listen to pick a film that we should give a little bit of love to. Should have a bit of a discussion about. And we picked our three out of a very lengthy list. There's some fantastic suggestions, and we might sort of end up going through some of those films anyway. But the three official suggestions that we had for uh, this year are Don't Think I've Forgotten, Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll, which is suggested by Tyler Kennedy. Dogs in Space, that was suggested by Professor Michael Benton, who we will invite back onto the show when we cover that film. Mind you, that would have made a good partnership with this film, considering it starred Michael Hutchins, who I always sort of thought was the biggest Jim Morrison wannabe on the planet. Um, (laughs) But uh, the film that we're going for next month is suggested by... Scott Smart has suggested that we cover The Devil and Daniel Johnson, 2005 documentary about singer-songwriter Daniel Johnson who released a whole lot of music on cassettes but has a very interesting story due to his schizophrenia. So we'll be talking music and mental health in April of 2018. I look very much forward to talking about that. If you want to get in contact with us, please email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. Talk to us about whether you think we got episode 50 right. Tell us whether you think we're amazed that we lasted this long or that you hope that we get to episode 100. We look forward to your feedback because we are a bunch of egomaniacal narcissists and we need you to tell us that we're doing things right. You can join our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seehear. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. And anything else that we need to mention for the uh, listener out there? No? All no, right. I think that's it. So until next time, this has been the end. We love you madly. For all the strange people out there. Mm. People are strange. 
yeah. Yeah, I, I do see what you did. Do you know what? Just take all of this out, Morris. I think I'll take the edit. So until April of 2018, be good, be nice to each other, listen to a lot of Doors records, watch the film if you feel you have to, and we'll talk to you in April of 2018. Cheers. Bye. The killer awoke before dawn. He put his boots on. He took a face from the ancient gallery and he walked on down the hall. He went into the room where his sister lived and then he Paid a visit to his brother and then he He walked on down the hall And he came to a door And he looked inside Father, yes son, I want to kill you It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.